Assalamu alaikum everyone and welcome to the third episode of Oratraj Talks uh, entitled Women and the Law. My name is Rania Khan. My name is Inya Mehdi. And we are beyond honored to be joined today by Ms. Yasmin Hassan, who is the Global Executive Director of Equality Now. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me on, Rania and Zinia. So for a little bit of context, Equality Now is an international human rights organization that uses the power of the law to fight for equality for women and girls all around the world. And without further ado, we're just going to be diving right into questions. So first of all, Ms. Yasmin, I'd like to ask you a little bit, a bit about yourself as well as Equality Now. What makes it different from other human rights organizations? You know, it's interesting because I didn't know this myself, but we are the only global organization that's dedicated to law reform for women and girls. I thought there were many more at the national level. You have a lot of organizations that are working on the law. And then you have bigger human rights organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. But we are the only ones dedicated to having a very gendered analysis of the law and pushing to really make sure that the law meets the needs of women and girls. Um, so that makes us kind of unique. And I am actually sorry that it makes us unique because I think we need a lot more organization like ours uh, that connect women globally on these issues. Okay, so um, our next question is, could you tell us about the work that you've done here in Pakistan for women? You know, I'll go back a little bit like why I did this work because it was, I did, I grew up in Lahore and you know, around the time you guys were not born, but in 1979, we had, you know, General Ziaul Haq and they Islamicized, for lack of a better word, because I really don't think it was much about Islam, but Islamicized women's, uh, you know, Islamicized legal, protections for women. And as a result, women lost a lot of rights. And that's when what I call the women's rights movement was really born in Pakistan, because it was there previously, but they weren't so feisty and so directed at legal rights. And that's the time that that happened. A lot of women from my family, from family, friends and all, all took to the streets. And I was a child then, and I saw that if, if you know your government does not treat you as an equal citizen and give you equal rights under the law, then any amount of education or whatever people call empowerment through like jobs, and all, it, it is not going to take you uh, far. So um, I started really thinking about this as a child, and I really wanted to see, first of all, is this really true, what our country is saying about Islam? And so I went... Um, you know, out of the country to the United States, uh, to Mount Holyoke College, and I studied feminism and women's movements all around, particularly in the Muslim world, and really started looking at Islam and human rights. And I realized that a lot of what we are being told is just rhetoric. It's Wahhabism and it's interpretations by men. And that was actually not the case that, that women's rights are like nothing. We are not second-class citizens under religion or under law. Um, Islamic law. And what I also realized that women face these kind of issues wherever they are. And they could be under the guise of religion thwarting you, or it could be popular culture thwarting you, where you're very, very sexualized, that you don't even become a human being anymore. Uh, so there are very many authoritarian governments, what have you. Um, so my aim was really to unite women, to have a movement to be equal citizens under the law um, all over the world. 
And that is Equality Now. I met them while I was in law school um, at Harvard. They had just been founded in 1993. And really, the it came out of Amnesty International. And their aim was to bring women's rights squarely into human rights. Now, why did that matter? At that time in 1992, 1993, yes, people understood that women should have equal rights. But it was this was left to national level governments to do it at their own time, according to their own context. When you bring it squarely within human rights, it becomes an international issue and there is a global consensus to change stuff. So that's what we basically did with Equality Now is bring women's rights squarely into human rights. We were the first organization that looked at sex discriminatory laws, like literally the letter of the law around the world that on, on the face of it, the law treats men and women differently, right? And we started amending, putting pressure on governments to amend such laws. I think it's really important work. And I also ranks, it's one of the lowest country in the human development index, in the gender inequality index. And it's a huge country also, and it's a complex country. So um, in Pakistan, the focus that we had was number one was rape laws. And part of it is going back to 1979, that's the time that rape was brought under the Hudud ordinance. And the entire rape law was put under morality laws and fornication laws. So what had happened is a woman could absolutely not prove her rape. And what was happening at that time is that women who actually reported a rape were put in jail or flogged for fornication and adultery. And this was the biggest travesty. And so it took us like 20, like in Pakistan with support of like international women's groups. It took so long. It was only under General Musharraf that this law changed. So that was like a central focus of advocacy because we've never seen a law like that. And, and that kind of law spread to other countries. And we've now changed that law in Sudan, for example, and we are working on it in other, other places. Um, so that's been the focus, rape laws. We also looked at the in issue of incest in Pakistan. Pakistan still does not have a law against incest. Every other country of the world recognizes that there can be abuse in the family and young girls in particular, especially vulnerable, but Pakistan does not have that. We took a case of an incest survivor in Pakistan and took it through the legal system. We got the highest penalty under the law. And then we were pushing for the government of Pakistan to recognize, at least in the law itself, that incest can happen. And that we, we are still short of that because the religious lobby did not want that recognized. We've also worked on honor crimes, you know, which are Minobet, Chinoy, and other organizations. So I can go more into that. I think my answer is getting too long. So I will let you ask the next question. So this is actually just a follow-up question that I had that wasn't really listed, but I just wanted to ask, since you brought up Islamic law and everything, how do you think like Islamic law has such a huge role to play in not only our legal system, but just the mindset of the citizens of Pakistan as a whole? And how is it like often used as a weapon sometimes in the wrong hands against women? Oh, yeah, I think this is a big issue, not just for Pakistan, but around the Muslim world. Like, you know, 30 years ago, it did not have the currency Islamic law that it does today. And I know that when the women's movement started addressing, I mean, the whole, the, to me, the root of the problem is 1979, where we had the, the revolution in Iran, and then we have the rise of Wahhabism in all the Sunni world, and it was all a clash of power. And unfortunately, women got caught in the crosshairs because a lot of other Islamic regulations 
would have been commercial or otherwise, and it would have made Muslim countries untenable to work with in the global sphere, right? Because it's all, um, so women's rights were badly, badly impacted. And I think at that point, the people who counted themselves as women's rights activists decided to disengage from the Islamic rhetoric, saying that this is not even valid. And I think that ship has sailed, that perhaps that was a mistake now that I look back at it, because by not engaging, there's been a whole body buildup of influence, people's beliefs and all that, that has not had the benefit of being challenged from a women's rights perspective. So now we are, I'm working, I'm on the board of this other organization called Musawa. Um, and Musawa is a, a movement of women's rights uh, activists within the Islamic sphere. So we have, you know, so we've worked with um, Al-Azhar University to have a fatwa against female genital mutilation. We have scholars who are reinterpreting Islam and taking it back. And I think that's the big movement within Muslim countries going forward. Because when I studied Islamic law, I just want to be very clear, there is not much in it that is actually being propagated right now through very, very conservative. Uh, so it, it's a combination of culture and it's a combination of religion and they're being used against women. So I think we have to take back the night. And so one of the campaigns that we have launched right now last year is the global campaign on family law because family law is the most impacted from Islamic teaching. Because if you look at even in Pakistan, the family law ordinance, it is based on Islamic interpretations. Same with most other Muslim countries. You know, in Lebanon, we have multiple family law uh, things based on what sect you belong to. And it leaves women far behind. So I think that is, we have launched this at the UN and we have, you know, UN member states now behind us. I think the international activism on this issue will help efforts at the national level. Because very often at the national level, if women's rights activists speak up, they are thwarted and they are called un-Islamic and they are called, you know, you are against our culture and all that. So the support internationally with this and changing mindsets at a global level will take us a long way. All right. So the next question is that equality now has changed over 50 sex discriminatory laws. Could you give our audience a few examples of the impactful changes you have made? Yes, of course. I mean, and sex discriminatory laws was one of our early, like early 1990s campaign, because at that time, you know, you guys are too young, but Beijing conference for women happened in 1995. And from that, we got basically the Bible of women's rights. One of the things they said in Beijing was that all governments in 10 years, which would have been by 2005, will repeal all sex discriminatory laws. But governments didn't even know what a sex discriminatory law was. So we started putting all these laws together to show government what the laws are. And we found four major areas of discrimination. Number one, which I already talked a little bit about, was family laws, in which you include things about rights to enter into marriage, right? To exit a marriage, right? To custody of children, rights to be a person within a marriage, like have a job, have your inheritance, have access to, you know, wife obedience laws came into that. So there's family law, which we haven't moved the dial on significantly. Then there's employment, like economic rights. So it's like whether you can have a job, whether the hours that you work are regulated, whether you have, you know, rights to inheritance and all that. Third was personal rights. In this, in Pakistan, we had a big case, the evidence law, which makes the women's evidence like half that of a man. 
you have travel rights, you know, right to pass your nationality to your husband or your children. Uh, and last was there were laws that actually perpetrated violence against women, sort of forgiving uh, people who murder their wives and daughters and all in honor crimes, marital law being exempted from rape laws. You know, there were certain countries that allowed a husband to be the wife. So we've worked on all these and I'll give you one of the areas of success. I mean, there's been many areas of success apart from family law, which is entrenched in religion and culture, right? And that's why we started uh, the family laws campaign. But we did a global movement on nationality laws uh, because we said the world is becoming more and more global. People are moving all around the world. If women actually lose their nationality by marrying somebody of another nationality or cannot give their nationality to their children or their husband, that's, that's a farce. And a lot of laws have changed based on because of that campaign. And women are now more, I mean, across many parts of Africa, there is you know, changes in, in Latin America. And I'll give you another change, which is actually very pertinent now. There were laws all around the world about rapists going free if they married their victims. I, I, for your generation, I, I don't even think you can imagine what this is, but literally rape was, was in the books as a crime against the family and a crime against property because the woman was property. So if you married, the rapist married you, the rape victim, he would go free and there would be no crime. And so we've been working for years. We had a case in Morocco, for example, there was this young girl, Amina Filali, who was raped when she was 16 and she, her family took this case to court. The judge, instead of um, you know, sentencing the, the, the rapist, pressured the family to marry her to him. Now this young girl, could not fathom a life of being married to a guy who raped her and being raped every single day. So she swallowed rat poison and killed herself. And this led to an uprising in Morocco. All the groups took to the streets. We supported them and the law changed. You know, the law, and after that, the, the similar law changed in uh, Lebanon, in Jordan, in Palestine. So there was, a, there was an effect of that across the region. We've also changed it in Argentina, in Ethiopia, and all that. So this is one example of how global advocacy on one type of law can actually lead to change in multiple countries. And that's, that's the beauty of being able to be a global movement on these kind of laws, as opposed to just a national movement. Um, so those are some of the examples of successes that, that we've had under our sex discriminatory laws campaign. And I think they impact like millions of women around the world. Thank you. And that was the story about the girl in Morocco it was just incredibly heartbreaking to hear. And I'm glad that certain countries have taken steps to fight that law. So moving on to our next question, number six, um, you have four branches of work uh, and sexual violence and harmful practices and human trafficking and achieve legal equity. Which one of these branches do you believe needs the most work in Pakistan? And which branch do you, um, which branch have we made the most progress in, in your opinion? That's a hard thing to say. I mean, I don't think we've made enough progress. I think all of those, all of our work is relevant to Pakistan. Legal equality, I told you, family laws are still very discriminatory. There's a bunch of other laws in Pakistan that remain to be changed. Um, on sex trafficking, Pakistan does not even have a very uh, good understanding of what sex trafficking 
entails. We have an anti-sex trafficking law, but literally that law is seen as cross-border trafficking, but yet it is not being used. We put the law in place because of international pressure. I don't think there are in Pakistan, in Lahore, which I'm assuming both of you are from, there is a whole bunch of trafficking of young girls and women to countries of the Middle East for virginity sales and for sales for the um, you know, Arab sheikhs and all that. That is not being addressed. The government is very aware of it. And I have seen myself the passports of these girls, which are stamped as um, entertainers. And they are marked as being over 21 when they are clearly 15, 16, 17 years old, right? So our anti-trafficking law is not working. And the other thing the government doesn't understand is that trafficking is not just cross-border. The biggest amount of trafficking we see in Pakistan is from rural to urban areas and from city to city. Um, so I think there's a lot more work to be done in trafficking. I don't know if even the women's rights groups in Pakistan are equipped to do this work because this is, you know, women in prostitution are often seen as, you know, by the wayside. Okay. Um, so sex trafficking is definitely something that has been neglected in Pakistan. Sexual violence, I've always felt, is a key issue in Pakistan. And because of issues of morality and the, the fact that we had a rape law that thought that women were the perpetrators and they should be punished after being raped, it, even though that law changed, that law did change, but the mentality of the people, including the prosecutors, including the police, is basically when they interview a woman or girl, they do it with suspicion as opposed to, so there's a long way to go, even though we now have a rape law in Pakistan, that is forward-looking and you know that can be used. It's the implementation of that law that is a problem. And I'll give you an example of this because we did a case of this young girl who I will call Mariam, that's not her real name, who had been raped by her father at age 15 in Lahore. And she, they tried to report this case to the police. And, the, and she's a 15-year-old girl, mind you. The police said, no, no, this actually cannot happen because there's no way that the father could do this to a girl. And yet the mother might be trying to take revenge. And so all of this was put back on the girl, right? Plus the law in Pakistan didn't have a provision. There was a rape law and the rape law was very clear. And the girl was under 16. And 16 is the age of statutory age of rape. It is for if you're under 16, you don't have, there's no defense of consent of victim, right? Because it's a statutory rape case. Yet they wouldn't cut an FIR because they wouldn't believe this girl. So this girl came to um, water cans rape, and that's where I met this young girl. And we tried to help her, and we got a law firm to take on this case. And it took us so long. Every bit of progress on this, there was a hurdle. First, the prosecutors were going to drop the case because the father bribed the prosecutors because he had influence. We had to go rushing to the prosecutor's office, create a hue and cry, do a press conference, and then the prosecutor was changed and a new prosecutor was appointed. Then when they had to come to court, the mother and this girl who were very poor, the court kept delaying the thing. So they would go sit in court and then they would say, Aapki tariq lag and so it actually almost bankrupted the family. If we didn't support this family and all this, they couldn't have gone through the proceedings. Third, the way the court handled that case was the girl stood there, 15 years old, and her father stood next to her. 
Like there was no way of even separating a victim of a horrendous crime from the perpetrator, given the young age. So then we had to go rushing to like near hospital to get a screen. Like, you know, we would carry it in a van and like put it between the two. There was the way the girl was questioned was outrageous. So what I'm saying is even the law might be okay in Pakistan, the legal procedures and the way it is implemented actually discourages people from reporting rape. So you really have to have a heart, you know, that is very steady to be able to go through the legal process because that re-victimizes you. And as long as we have these kind of processes and this kind of attitude, I don't think if I was a rape victim, I would never come forward. I would just try to get counseling and move on because who wants to put themselves through this? So I think there's a lot, a lot of work. The rape, rates of rape are high in Pakistan. I am glad that the government has actually started working on these issues and like has, um, has done a series of amendments to the rape law, which are positive, you know, with some negative aspects like castration law and, you know, requirement and all that. But I think that this is a place that civil society really has to be a watchdog in watching the cases and really helping the government be better at implementing and training people. So I think that in sexual violence, there's a work to be done. Similar in ending harmful practices and the ones that apply in Pakistan are like honor crimes we talked about a little bit and there's been a change in the law like which is very positive um, and I'll tell you what the change was because Pakistan is a Muslim country they allow the crime that happens to you if you're a rape victim or anything the crime is against your family and not against the state so the family can choose to forgive right and in honor crimes the family was the same the family of the murderer was the same as the family of the murdered, so they would immediately forgive. So even though it was against the law, the person would get off. And in the 2016 amendments, after the murder of Kandil Baloch, and we had that film by Sharmin Ubech, you know, a girl in the river, and we advocated for the change, the, the law says now that this is a crime that cannot be forgiven by the family. So I'm still unsure about the exact implementation of that law and if that's being used properly. So again, I think the issue is Pakistan government has done changes, but it's the issue of implementation. We'll be following it. Then the second thing is child marriages in Pakistan are still going on um, and female genital mutilation. A lot of people don't seem to know about this, but among the Bora community, that is the norm. And it's been very hard to even advocate because it's a minority community. I mean, anytime you're doing something against a minority that is economically powerful, it is hard. So there's no FGM law in Pakistan and there's no law against that. So harmful practices still work needs to be done. Um, and I think I covered all of, all of the areas. Uh, so I think there's a lot of work in each of these. And I think that it would be, I'm really happy that you guys have started this organization because I think it's for young women to take up the charge now to move all these agenda forwards and really like understand what the law is and how the law is used and how it can be used to protect women because the government is not going to do that on its own no government does it on its own there's a lot of advocacy by women's rights activists and women's rights groups and the more you get trained on these kind of issues and create global alliances the better off you are all right so for the next question since you already um talked about rape in Pakistan, according to 2020 national statistics, one woman is raped every two hours, yet the conviction rate of rapists is 0.3%. Why is this the case and how does it speak to a larger global problem? 
Yeah, I think we already talked about this a little bit and it's the same. We talked about Pakistan and I gave you the case of Mariam, which also was an, it gives you an example of why, number one, women will not report a case. And, and so there's a very, of all the women who are raped, very few reported. And two, when they do report it, most of those things, the FIRs never go anywhere. And number two, or they are killed in prosecution or the cases you know, die out through the court process because it is very hard for women to go through these cases. Now, this is not a problem that is only in Pakistan. We see this issue globally. And one of the things that we are really working on, we have worked right now with the Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women to create a model framework for a rape law, which gives guidance to governments about what are the provisions that should be in the law, as well as what are the ways of implementing the law. So, you know, we totally agree with the concept that somebody is innocent until proven guilty, you know, which is the, you know, which is what you assume in criminal law. But at the same time, you cannot have so many barriers to the survivor of a violent crime in no other case, like in murder cases, none of the cases other than cases to do with women are the victims of a crime questioned in a way that is that puts suspicion on them. What did you wear? Why were you there? What did you know? How did you deal with? Did you have a relationship with this person? Did you go to a party? You know, all these things. If, if you're murdered, if you're assaulted, and all, you never have these kind of questions in domestic violence cases, sexual violence cases, even sex trafficking cases. You have the victim put under suspicion. So I think there's a lot of work that we have to do around the world. This is not just Pakistan's issue. It is an issue around the world and we are working on it at a global level. And we are hoping then that, that women's rights groups around the world will take up this kind of guidance and really advocate in their own countries. Um, Pakistan definitely had, I mean, Pakistan is a huge country. A lot of like countries that do really well on these are like Scandinavian countries with population of 5 million people, right? And, and homogenous population. We have a huge population. We have a lot of issues. So we really have to have leadership about in the context of every area, what can be done and how can how is the best way forward? And I really think that local organizations working on these issues have that knowledge and these organizations have to be empowered and supported. Um, you know, I'll give you an example of War Against Rape that was in Lahore, it was an excellent organization and it was founded by like-minded people who wanted to really tackle the issue of rape. And I don't even know if that organization exists anymore. It hasn't had the support of the population to really, and, and even young women's rights activists to really like join it. People keep starting their own organizations instead of building on what was there. And that's one of the problems because whenever somebody builds something new, you have to start from scratch and have to learn everything. And all the knowledge that's in a, an existing you know, organization dies. So I really believe in supporting grassroots and getting more people to give money, to give their time, to be involved in these kind of things. And I think that is what will take Pakistan far. Okay, so thank you for that answer. And again, while we're still on the topic of rape, um, an anti-rape bill was very recently passed here, but it only punishes offenders who have been repeatedly involved in rape. So do you believe this is a step forward for Pakistan or a step back? 
I don't think that's what the law does because even prior to this 2020 amendment, we had a pretty good rape law. So rape was punished as a crime. And I told you even statutory rape was under the age of 16 is statutory rape. There were some amendments made in, uh, you know, after the Zainab case, which, you know, Imran Khan's government made harsher penalties and all that. But those are just amendments to the rape law. I think our rape law, the law itself is good enough. It is the implementation of that law. You really look at all of rape legislation, there aren't so many gaps as you would think. And I definitely don't think rape only punishes people who are repeat offenders. I think there's enhanced penalty for repeat offenders, which is the case in a lot of laws. Like if you are a thief and you have, like in this country, in the United States, if you have multiple convictions, you get a harsher penalty. And I think that's what the law probably does. Uh, but I haven't studied this and I haven't seen it framed this way that the law only gives punishment to people who are repeat offenders because there is like a penal code in Pakistan that punishes rape. Okay, so thank you for clearing that up. Uh, so moving on, while your four branches of work affect all women in Pakistan, it is far more difficult for underprivileged women to receive the legal help they deserve. How do we make the law more accessible for all women here, no matter their class? See, again, this is what I talked a little bit about. It's the local organizations, right? This is where you need to empower organizations in communities to do the work within their communities. Because, for example, accessing the law, first of all, a woman needs to be aware of what the law is. And in most rural areas of Pakistan, nobody's aware. Even in a lot of urban areas, if you get these rape laws, for example, are women really aware of what, what's in them? Are women aware of the anti-honor crimes law and all that? So awareness raising has to be a first big step that women actually get to know about it. And that can only be done by local organization or national level organizations that create coalitions to spread that knowledge. And then you need legal aid centers to help women to access the law, okay? It's not that easy for somebody who is in some rural area, even in an urban area to say, okay, this has happened to me how do I go about changing this? If I know that Asma Jangir's organization, which used to be AGHS and now has a different name, Legal Aid Cell, they have paralegals throughout like Punjab, I believe, that are in communities and they go and talk to people and take on their legal cases and then represent them free of charge. We need many more like that in, in every province. And there has to be you know, some places have done mobile units with paralegals. I know I worked with Mukhtar Mai a while back, and Mukhtar Mai had um, a van that had a lawyer and support services that went throughout the community, and they would get a phone call, and they would send that van out. Unfortunately, the government of Pakistan does not do this kind of support to victims, right? So it is up to civil society, and civil society really has to come. They have to raise their own money. And a lot of the issue becomes in Pakistan is like if foreign money is coming and immediately those efforts are discredited as foreign efforts, right? But I think that there's a lot of wealthy people in Pakistan. There's a lot of people who give charity to poor people and give charity to, you know, universities in particular and, you know, setting up. I think we need to create a culture in Pakistan of giving charity to these kind of causes that are legal advocacy and legal aid to people who need it the most. So I think that's up to you, you guys, like really, I'm too old, but you guys can change that culture and bring about the change that we need. Because we need women in poor areas to know the law, 
to be able to access it. But that is beyond what equality now really can do, you know? Okay, so we're heading towards the end of our questions. So as our second last question, uh, you talked about awareness raising and making sure we educate the women of Pakistan, but how else do you believe that smaller, especially youth-led feminist initiatives who aren't necessarily like licensed licensed lawyers or paralegals like Oratraj adopt equalities, Equality Now's um, unique practice of, and I quote, uh, legal advocacy, regional partnership building, and community mobilization to encourage governments to adopt, improve, and enforce laws that protect and promote the rights of women and girls around the world. Okay, well, one thing that you have in your toolkit as young people is the whole power of social media and new ways of communicating, right? And I think that goes a really long way. When I was growing up, there was no such thing. And, and the power of using not just social media, but even when I grew up, we had one TV station in Pakistan. It would be on from 5 p.m. until like 11 p.m. and it was state controlled and very limited programming. Now you have programming that reaches millions of people. So one thing I encourage people is sometimes culture change happens, not with legal change, but with you know popular shows whether they're talk shows or whether they're dramas or whether they're like conversations that you start that kind of go viral. So there's a lot that you can do with new means of communication to just spread the message and the awareness. And sometimes really the awareness is better. Just like when I told you the story, that resonated much more than anything I can say to you about the law and the need for legal change. Storytelling getting the stories of women and girls who are harmed by certain things is a very powerful tool to even getting people ready to make the change and support the change. So I think you can tell stories, you can use the media, you can also have these platforms such as you know, at the United Nations, it is also all the human rights treaty bodies have ways where civil society can report violations. And we can talk a little bit more about that later outside of this, that young people should use these tools. I think many times people are not aware of the tools that they have to report something that happens in a country to put pressure on that same country to make change at the international level. So I think a lot of young groups can do all these kind of things, even if you're not lawyers or, you know, you can be amazing activists and do a lot of great work in the field. Thank you for those ideas. Um, to end on a positive note, do you believe, um, sorry, do you have any particularly inspiring stories to share of women you've helped around the globe? Yeah, I have lots and I'm trying to think of which one I should pick. Okay, maybe this young woman from Gambia, the Gambia. She was a child bride and she had been suffered female genital mutilation, like full infibulation. She was married off to the, somebody in the United States and ended up in New York City from the Gambia and then tried to kill herself. So we met her in a hospital where she tried to commit suicide. And from that young woman at 15, she is now the leading activist against female genital mutilation and child marriage. The Gambia was one of the countries which was very um, influenced by Islam and at, in the Gambia, it was said that female genital mutilation is a requirement of Islam. She not, and we had been working there for 20 years with older activists to try to change that law and change that perception. And Jaha, as a young girl, led a youth movement in the Gambia 
not only changed the law, her father was a leading imam who was propagating FGM and she prevailed on him to not mutilate her youngest sister who was born. So that's how change, you know, and I, it sends shivers down my spine. A film has been made about Jaha also as the activist, but this was a young girl who could have died at age 15 after being, you know, after being um, mutilated, put in child marriage and having atrocious things happen to her. But she took that and turned it into good fathers. And the law has changed in Gambia and she's a leading advocate against this around the world. She made like times 100 most influential women around the world a couple of years ago. So those are stories that like keep you going because you can see that there are people who suffer horrible things, but it's not all survivors. And I also don't want to put any pressure of somebody who survived an atrocity to become an activist, but when they do, they can change the world and they can change the law and their country and all that. So people like Jaha keep us going. Well, um, that concludes the interview. And thank you for sharing that, Ms. Hudson. That was an incredibly empowering way to end this interview. So that concludes this episode of Arthraj Talks featuring Ms. Yasmin Hudson from Equality Now. Thank you all for listening. And we hope you gained some insight through Yasmin Hudson's knowledge. Bye.